like for you to be turning in your Bibles. And I know that we show the scripture on the screen, and I believe that that's helpful so that you can see the translation from which I am interpreting. But uh, it's good for you to bring your own Bible. It's good for you to uh, see the text that we're looking at. And so this morning, I want you to be turning in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 3 through 11. And uh, very appropriately, the one word, the one word, and you know, it's, it's good to try to put in one word or as few words as possible the message that God wants us to get, the takeaway from the uh, various books of the Bible. It's John's gospel, as he writes those 20-something chapters, 21 chapters, I think it is, the one word, the takeaway, is belief. Belief. He wrote these things so that you and I might believe in him. This, this first John, the one word that uh, Daniel and I have tried to put in a nutshell for you as a takeaway is the word assured, assured. And the, uh, the title of my message this morning is assurance, that is to be assured from the inside out, from the inside out. And so as we think about that, I'm going to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Let's follow along. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in Jesus and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and he walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John makes it clear to us in these verses and really in the entire book makes it clear to us that there is something that you and I absolutely need to be assured of. What is it that you and I need to be certain of? Well, he tells us in that verse 3, the idea of being assured means that we need to know. We need to know. We need to be certain. We need to be assured that we have come to know him. God does not want us to live in deceit. What do I mean by living in deceit? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, 
Jesus' disciples come up to Jesus and they talk about these guys that are doing just amazing things in the name of the Lord and calling Jesus Lord. And, and Jesus says to them, he said, there are those that are out there that call me Lord, Lord, but I never knew them. I never knew them. And so God does not want us to live in deceit. Neither does God want us to live in doubt. Doubt gives rise to all kinds of insecurities. Doubt leads to dysfunctional behavior. Doubt prevents you from moving forward. A lot of times when I, when I talk to somebody about their relationship with Christ and ask them if they have ever asked Jesus Christ to come into their life, Sometimes their response to me will be, yes, pastor, I've prayed a prayer like that. As a matter of fact, I pray that prayer every day. Now, I'm not really questioning their salvation, but what I'm questioning is, my concern is the doubts that they're dealing with to get to the point where they have to ask Christ to be their Savior every day. Instead of getting to the place where they're secure in their relationship with the Lord, they're able to move forward and... They are able to give thanks to the Lord for being in their life. And so, God does not want us to live our lives in deceit. God does not want us to live our lives in doubt. But what does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to know Jesus? To know Jesus is more than just having intellectual assent to who he was. It's more than just giving intellectual assent to who he was. It's not just a matter of knowing about Jesus. It's not just a matter of knowing of Jesus. We can teach anybody about who the historical character of Jesus is, and you might know all about Jesus and what he did and where he lived and all of his story. But to know Jesus is more than giving intellectual assent. It is more than having an emotional experience. It is more than just sort of coming to church or even sitting out in the countryside and having a nice warm feeling when you think about God. It involves more than that. We come to know Jesus by faith as an act of the will. You see, to know Jesus is, is all about a relationship. And in order to establish a relationship in somebody else, you, you, you've got to put a certain amount of trust in that other individual. And so it's not just a matter of knowing about an individual. It's not just a matter of having some good feelings <clears throat> when you're around an individual, but you begin to develop a relationship with somebody when you begin to trust in them. And, and, and that involves an act of the will. The Bible tells us in John 1.11 that Jesus came into his own, his own people, but his own people received him not. In order to receive Jesus, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an act of the will. It's, it's what the Bible refers to as repentance. It's a turning from self to Christ. And that involves an act of the will. The Bible says that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The calling upon the name of the Lord is when a person turns from themselves and they turn to Christ for salvation. Well, what does it mean to be saved? There's, there's a key phrase that's mentioned time and time again throughout the New Testament. Uh, one of my seminary professors, uh, Ray Frank Robbins, my New Testament professor, told me, and I take, him, take his word for it, I've never counted it, but he said 164 times in the New Testament, the phrase is used 
of a Christian as being in Christ or Christ in you. Now that's making reference to that intimate personal relationship that a person has with another person. He is in you and you are in him. As a matter of fact, the, the Hebrew word that is used over time and time again through the Old Testament, and particularly in the book of uh, Genesis, in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, to give you an idea of what it means to know, it tells us in, in Genesis 4, 1, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. That word, that phrase, had relations with, is literally the word to know. In other words, what it says here is, Adam knew Eve, and she gave birth to Cain. And so what that's describing is more than just intellectual assent, more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling, but they had intimate relations with one another. They knew each other. And that's what it's referring to is the kind of relationship, what it means for us, you and I, to know Christ, to know the Lord. With that understanding, John, Don, John doesn't just say that we need to know that we have come to know him. Here's what he says. He says, you can know that you've come to know him. How do we know that? Well, first of all, he gives us a test. First of all, he gives us a test. And here's the test. Verse 3, look at it. By this we know that we have come to know him. How do we know that we've come to know him? He says, we, have, we can know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. It's critical, it's most important that you see the connection between the latter part of this verse and the first part of this verse. If we keep his commandments, is dependent upon if we've come to know him. And coming to know him is describing this intimate, personal relationship that we have with Christ. And the kind of person that comes to know him in that intimate way is the kind of person that is going to want to keep his commandments. There is something so certain, so true, so universal, that it applies to every person, every generation, that can be put to the test. And that test is this, that you can know him. You can know him. And to know him is to love him. To know him is to love him. And to love him is to obey him. Many years ago, there was a pastor down in Florida. He's a pastor of uh, Carl Gable's Presbyterian Church. And uh, James Kennedy. And uh, James Kennedy was a very evangelistic Presbyterian pastor. And James Kennedy was uh, actively shared his faith with other people, seeking to lead them to a personal faith and trust in Christ. And in their conversations, he found out that there was a question that he could put to people to help them position themselves to find out whether or not they really had the assurance of being saved. And the question that he put to them was this, do you know for certain that you have a home in heaven with Jesus when you die? Do you know for certain that you have a home in heaven with Jesus when you die? I don't know how you would answer that question here this morning, but I want to put another question to you. And the way you answer this question is going to be dependent on how you answer that other question. The way you can know that you have a home in heaven with Jesus when you die is this. 
when Jesus has a home in you while you live? Does Jesus have a home in you while you're living right now? Has Jesus taken up residence with you? Is your heart, is your life his home? Is he at home with you? And if he's at home with you in this life right here, right now, you can be assured of this, that you will have a home with him in heaven when you die. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus whom thou hast sent. Eternal life, eternal life begins the day that you establish a relationship of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait until you die to experience eternal life. Eternal life begins right here, right now, in a relationship with Jesus. It is relational. So here's the test. Not, did you pray a prayer when you were 10 years old to ask Jesus in your heart? It's not whether or not you can look back at a time in your life and say, well, yeah, there's a day when I was baptized and I'm a member of the church. No, the real test is this. Do you keep his commandments? Is the desire, the ambition to be pleasing to him what your ambition is? Do you have a want-to-doer that wants to please him and do what he wants you to do? And so there's the test. But now here's the truth. Here's the truth. Verse 4 says this, the one who says that I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, I know this, that as I look at each one of you, I'm looking at a congregation of liars. Every one of us has lied. Would you agree? Every one of us is told a lie. At Vacation Bible School, it's my privilege and my joy to get around to talk to the uh, different children's classes. And one of the things that, that I want to try to do is I tell them about Jesus and what he offers them and forgiveness of their sins is to, first of all, help them to see that they're a sinner. And so how do you convince a 10-year-old that he's a sinner? You know, what has he done? He hadn't committed adultery yet. He hasn't killed anybody yet. At least most of them haven't. And, and, and so how do you convince somebody that, that they're a sinner? So I put a question to them, and I said, how many of you all have told a lie? Without exception, every single one of them agrees that they have told a lie. And so what I'm looking at in these nice little 10-year-old, innocent little kids, I'm looking at a bunch of lies. And right now, I'm looking at a bunch of liars, because you've all told lies, and guess what? You're looking at one liar. <laughs> Okay, we all know what it's like to tell a lie. Why do we tell lies? It's because we, we, either we don't want somebody to know who we really are, or it's because we want to make ourselves or present ourselves better or bigger than what we really are. And so we find ourselves telling these lies. And so it's hard, it's hard for us to admit just exactly who we are. It's hard for us to admit that we're a sinner, that we need Christ. But there's an old saying that goes like this. The old saying says, if, if, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, what is it? It's a duck. 
And, and if you look like a sinner, and you walk like a sinner, and you talk like a sinner, you tell lies, guess what you are? You're a sinner. You're a sinner. And, and, and this knowing Christ, this relationship, the real thing begins with admitting who we are. We, we all, the most, common, the most common problem that all of us have is the problem of denial. We're just not willing to admit who we really are. Ephesians 6, 13 and 14, Paul emphasizes the importance for you and I to come to the place of truthfulness about who we are. He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. He goes on to talk about the importance of putting on the helmet of salvation and taking in your hand the sword of the Spirit. But the first piece of armor, the first piece of armor is this, that you put on the belt of truth, that you gird yourself with truth until you and I are willing to come to the point where we are absolutely truthful with God as to who we are then we'll never get past that. If you and I think that, well, we can just live a lie, act a lie, tell a lie, then there's no telling what we'll do. How important it is that we, the first step towards stability and standing firm in the face of temptation is being truthful with God about who we really are. Psalm 51.6, the psalm of confession that David prays, says this in verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. There are those who are among us, the assured, are those who, when you peel away the layers of uh, who they are, you'll find truth about your relationship with Jesus, or you'll find that you're playing games. And then finally, we've got the test, we've got the truth. But here's the key. What about the transformation? What about the transformation? How can John state it so matter-of-factly? How can he state the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him? Folks, that's black and white. There's no gray area here. How can he state that so matter-of-factly? Well. It's because when a person gets Jesus, things begin to happen. We are assured that we know him when we experience real-life transformation taking place from the inside out. So here's the question. What does this text tell us about the transformation? What is it that goes on inside the person who has come to know Jesus. Well, that person is going to experience the transforming power of God's love and God's light. God's love and God's light. And there's no two stronger, more powerful virtues in this world than the power of God's love and the power of God's light. And so, let's look first of all at his love. Here's what it says, verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, notice this, whoever keeps his word, what's taking place in him? Do you see what he's saying? 
Whoever keeps his word, something's going on in here. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. What is that all about? What does it mean for God's love to be perfected? What is this idea about perfection? The idea behind perfection is that God's, God's love is being brought to its intended goal. That, that's what God had in mind with his love. He had in mind his love to be put in you so that it would be brought out to its intended goal. That God's love would have its effect upon our life, the transforming effect upon our life. And so, what is this love? It, it, it is, it is the, the, the grammar is talking about a love that you and I as human beings, those that have come to know Christ by faith, by trust in him, not just an intellectual assent, not just an emotional stirring, but of a, a, a volition of giving our will to him, something gets in here. And it is God's love. We possess it. That's what it's talking about. It's the genitive here. It's talking about something that you and I as, as, as believers have possessed. Well, what is it that we possess? We possess some translations, the New American Standard says, you possess nothing less than the love of God. The love of God. In other words, it's talking about a qualitative type of love. It's nothing less than, the God, than, than God's love that exists in here. And when you have that kind of qualitative love, a love of God, then you can love even sinners the way Jesus loved even sinners. Even those people that are hard to get along with. As he talks about in the text, you will love your brother and not hate him because you've got the love of God. You've got that kind of love within you now. And it begins to transform you. But not only that, you have the love of God in you. In other words, you experience nothing less than God's love. And there's not anything more transforming in a person's life than for a person to experience nothing less than the love that God has for them. But there's also another way to describe it. And that is the New International Version takes this little slant on it. And that is, is yes, you possess it, but it's referred to as the objective, the genitive objective. And that is that you now have a love for God. The love of God that goes in you now produces in you a love for God. And so all of a sudden what God has done is he has given you the power. He has given you the power to love him with the kind of love that is going to drive you and motivate you to want to do what he wants you to do. And so you leave all of that out. You leave this, this inworking of God's spirit within you. You leave it out. And, and, and Christianity is just trying to live by a bunch of rules and regulations in your own power. But when you understand that what Christianity is all about is a true relationship with him, where he pours out his love in you, then all of a sudden that begins to work in you and you begin to have a love for him. On the other hand, on the other hand, look at verse 8. I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him, and it's in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In this world of darkness, 
The true light, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is already shining. And here is the amazing transforming power of the gospel. This light, the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ can shine within your heart. Years ago, in John chapter 8, we have the record of a woman who is actually caught in the act of adultery. And, and the Jewish law said that she was supposed to be stoned to death. And so these guys that found her, they brought her to Jesus, and they wanted to find out what Jesus was going to tell them to do with this woman. And he said, those of you that are without sin, you cast the first stone. Well, they all walked away. And Jesus was left there with the, with the woman by herself. And here's what Jesus told her. A sinner, a sinner, go and sin no more. Now, somebody that's in adulterous relationships and sinful relationships is truly living in darkness. Truly living in darkness. It, it, it's it's the, the, the effect that sin has had upon this woman's life. And yet Jesus, in, 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 in his boldness and his confidence, he says, go and sin no more. How does that happen? You read the next couple of verses and Jesus says, here's how it happens. I am the light of the world. And when a person gets the light of the world in here, shedding abroad within their heart, it begins to penetrate the darkness, and it begins to overcome the darkness. And light not only exposes the darkness, but light overcomes the darkness. And it's Jesus within us that we have through the gospel of Christ, and we put our faith and trust in him. We know him. He's the one. He's the one that begins to shine the light within us. And we find ourselves overcoming the darkness. And so, I want to conclude by just reading two verses to you. Verse 7 and verse 8. We're going to look at verse 8 that's up there. But listen to verse 7 as we come to the Lord's table. Behold, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment. In other words, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but I'm writing an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Okay. The old commandment, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your, and your neighbor as yourself, that's nothing new. Yet, on the other hand, verse 8, I'm writing to you a new commandment. I'm not writing you a new commandment. It's the same thing. But yet, on the other hand, I am writing to you a new commandment. So what's new about it? What's new about it? He says in verse 8, I'm writing to you a new commandment, which is true in him, and now it's in you. In other words, this thing that's all new is that the law, when it was given, God gave us the law, the old commandments, to guide us, and to lead us down a pathway of blessing rather than experiencing the curse. And if you follow God's law and you follow God's commandments, whether you're a Christian or not, you follow God's law, and I'll promise you, you'll have a much more blessed life than you will if you live outside God's will, revealed will for your life. Okay? But here's the problem. You can't do it. You can't do that. Because this, the, the, the law not just shows us the pathway to go in the way of blessing, but the law also exposes, it's like a mirror, and I look at it, and if I'm truthful with myself, honest with myself, I say, God, I can't do that. I can't live up to that. 
I fall short of your glory. I miss the mark. And so what does God do about it? God gives us a new covenant. A new covenant. And the new covenant is this. The G- Jesus says, listen, not, here's what I want to do. I want to take, take my spirit and I'm going to put it in you. I'm going to give you a brand new heart. I'm going to change your want to doer. I'm going to start giving you a love for God. I'm going to give you nothing less than the light of God's Spirit. And so that's how it becomes new. It's not a new commandment, yet it is a new commandment, which is true in Him, and now it's in you. And you'll begin to see that the darkness is passing away. And so this, this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, what we celebrate here, Jesus said that this is the blood of the new covenant. What Jesus is saying is, where you and I have missed the mark and come short and we're due the penalty, Jesus has taken that penalty upon himself. Jesus has died in our place. All of our sin is transferred to him. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. Jesus said, listen, I went to the cross and I rose again and I ascended into heaven. But I didn't leave you as orphans. I'm I'm sending nothing less than the Spirit of God, and He descends. It came on the day of Pentecost, and those of us who have opened our lives to Him very truthfully and honestly and have a relationship with Him, then we have all the benefits of the new covenant. It's it's, It's nothing new, but on the other hand, with Christ, He makes all things new. Have you accepted Christ this morning? Do you have that kind of relationship? You can put that to the test and be honest with yourself. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to the table this morning, we come to the table in honesty, and we come to the table in truthfulness, and we come to the table with a deep, deep measure of gratefulness. God, you've done just an amazing work within our lives. And God, here in just a moment, all across this congregation, there's going to be people who take a piece of bread and they eat it. It becomes a part of them. And in just a few moments, they'll take a cup and they'll drink it. It becomes a part of them, their identity as to who they are. And Heavenly Father, those of us who are true believers, those of us who who know and have that personal relationship, a faith, a trust relationship in Christ, God, we we want others to know that. We want to bear witness to that and testimony to that. So Father, those that have given their lives to Christ, Lord, as this bread and as this cup comes by, in their assurance of their knowledge of knowing you, may they take that cup, may they take that bread, and may they eat and drink. But Heavenly Father, I pray that those that do not have that relationship, that they understand that it doesn't come by eating a piece of bread, it doesn't come by drinking a cup of juice. It comes through nothing less than a faith transaction 
a trust transaction where they surrender all to the Lordship of Jesus. And they say, Lord Jesus, today I want you to come into my life. I want you to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. I want you to sit on the throne of my life. I want you to be my Lord and Master. Thank you so much for forgiving my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.